Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Voices. This is the Voices Network. This is episode 22, Occupied Defense. And our uh, guest, we've got a great guest today and a lot to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and let you just take off and introduce yourself, please. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm uh, Major Danny Shorson. Uh, I uh, currently serve in the U.S. Army, uh, at least for a little bit longer. I, um, I graduated from, from West Point in 2005, served in reconnaissance units in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, then taught history for a while at, uh, at West Point. Hmm. And I'm currently uh, finishing a Ph.D. at the University of Kansas, and uh, uh, I've, I've authored a number of articles, and uh, my book, which you should check out uh, if you get a chance, is Ghost Riders of Baghdad. And uh, that's available on Amazon, and it's a critical overview slash memoir of the Iraq War. Uh, overall, my interests are in uh, national defense strategy, uh, anti-interventionism, and uh, just a, just a fresh look at uh, at our forever wars that we've uh, been engaging in in my entire adult life. So I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you here. It's great to hear this point of view. I don't believe we've ever had anybody on who was. Uh, who's got your background yet. Uh, so let's go ahead and take right off. Uh, I, I wanted to start with an article you just put out. Uh, the parties lack coherent political foreign policy. Um, let her rip. <laughs> what do we yeah. need to know? What, what we don't know about the military is, is absolutely phenomenal. We've all seen too many movies. Um, yeah. what, what do we need to know? Well, that was a piece that I uh, published in The Hill, which is a, a rather mainstream outlet, actually, inside the Beltway. And I purposely published with The Hill because I wanted to take a tough shot at both major mainstream political parties, both the Republicans and the Democrats. My thesis in the piece is that, quite frankly, neither of those two major political parties have anything near to a coherent foreign policy. Actually... Hmm. Both promise the impossible, they overpromise, they underproduce, and they fail soldiers in the process. And I'll, I'll try to explain why. See, Please they're both do. selling snake oil. Both sides are selling snake oil. They both assume that the United States needs to be the most powerful country in the world, that we can have it all, that we can have economic prosperity, but also have low taxes and also spread our military around the world and our values with no cost either to them or to our soldiers. And it's fantasy. That is fantasy. And both sides peddle the same idea but have different arguments in their favor. And I'll get into that just a little bit. Let's start with the Republicans. They're easy to critique because there's a lot of sort of contradiction at the heart of the Republican foreign policy. And it goes something like this. We can have unlimited military spending, unlimited defense budgets, unlimited arms sales, and we can spread our values and protect ourselves from terror by putting our soldiers in 70% of the countries in the world. That's what we have soldiers in right now. 70% of the countries in the world have U.S. Army, U.S. military forces deployed there, mostly special operations forces. And they tell us we can do this indefinitely without raising taxes, in fact, cutting taxes, and that somehow that checkbook is going to balance. Well, that's absolutely ludicrous. Think about that for a second. 
military spending increasing by $100 billion by most estimates for the next fiscal year. So for fiscal year 19, it looks like the Trump budget is going to go up to about uh, nearly $800 billion or slightly more than $800 billion, so about a $100 billion increase. That is more than the next nine or ten countries in a row, six of which are our allies. Okay, so we're talking about China, Russia, India, Saudi Arabia, England, France, Germany. These are the next biggest spenders, most of whom are allies or strategic partners, and we're spending more than all of them combined. Well, certainly that's not going to balance the checkbook, and what we're going to have is enormous debts and an enormous shortfall in the budget, and the deficit's going to increase. It's, it's, it's up in the trillions or in the tens of trillions already, but we're promised that have no fear when we cut taxes, it's going, to, it's going to increase growth and it's going to increase investment from the rich into our economy, and therefore we're never going to have to pay the bill, and the bill's never going to come due. It's fantasy. It didn't work in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan tried it. It didn't work under George W. Bush. Massive military spending combined with decreased government revenue from lower taxation is the road to debt and failure. It's happened every time it's been tried and it's snake oil. That's what they're selling us. Next, I'm going to get to the Democrats. Before I do, I really should have started with this at the top. I want to say that, you know, I'm an active duty major in the United States Army, but I'm speaking here in an unofficial capacity as myself, as Danny Shorson. The opinions that I express uh, are not those necessarily of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Now that that's been said, I want to talk about the second major political party, and how they sell us snake oil on foreign policy. You see, the Democrats tend to couch their language in a little bit more sophisticated analysis, analysis and the, uh, the illusion of nuance. It sounds great. They tell us, well, we're still going to be the most powerful country in the world, but we're going to be smart about it. We're going to use, quote, smart power. We're going to use, quote, soft power, and we're going to balance it with the hard power. They say we're not going to decrease military spending in any major way, and we're not going to lower our interventions and commitments overseas in any manageable way because they're afraid of looking soft. They're afraid of looking like doves. Because ever since the Vietnam War, the Republicans have painted broad brush the Democrats as essentially wusses, soft on foreign policy, soft on <laughs> terror, not to be trusted. So the Democrats are scared to death of that. So they actually escalate wars that they may not even believe in. Now, all that might be fine, except for the lonely soldier who's deployed fighting a war he can't win. But it gets even worse, because the Democrats, they also can't balance a checkbook worth a damn. I may agree with a lot of their programs. I might personally consider myself economically more liberal than most of my peers. But it still doesn't line up. They want to increase entitlement spending, free college, free health care, which are very laudable goals. But where's the money coming from? They're not willing to increase taxes in any massive way. I mean, they're willing to work around the edges and add a little more taxation to the super-rich, and that's, that's just fine. I'm in favor of progressive taxation. But unless they're willing to cut the military budget substantially and cut the amount of overseas interventions that cost us contingency funds money, then that checkbook's not going to balance either. So what are we left with? We're left with a two-party system that has no anti-interventionist, no anti-war party. At least in Vietnam, there was 
the sense that at least one major wing of the Democratic Party was anti-interventionist and realized the Vietnam War was unwinnable and not worth fighting. We don't have that voice in mainstream politics today. And I would argue that that does a disservice to our soldiers because our soldiers are all around the world fighting indecisive wars, fighting in quagmires from West Africa to South Asia, more countries every year being added to the list of people we bomb and people we assist and people we give special forces troops to. We've got American soldiers this year who died in Somalia, died in Yemen, died in Niger in West Africa, which no one can find on a map, died in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, which are the old haunts where we've been dying now for 16-plus years. There is no voice out there questioning these wars, questioning their value, whether they're in our strategic interest, and whether they are, in fact, winnable. So, lest I sound too pessimistic, which my wife would tell you I often do, <laughs> I want to say that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, potentially. There's an alliance out there between the libertarian Republicans... There's not many of them, but now I'm thinking about Rand Paul, okay? Libertarian Republicans who are questioning our interventions overseas have to make common cause with the far-left anti-interventionist Democrats or independents. I'm thinking Bernie Sanders. I'm thinking maybe Elizabeth Warren, okay, the people who are on the far left. Look, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, the mainstream figures in both the Republican and the Democratic Party, the Senate Majority Leader and the Senate Minority Leader, respectively, they are tainted. They supported the Iraq War, which was, at the very least, ill-advised, at the worst, illegal, and therefore they are tainted. Do not look for either of those two mainstream figures within the, the two parties and their allies to save us, because they're not going to. What we need is a new coalition of libertarian conservatives, and anti-interventionist, further left activists. And until we do that, and as long as we rely on the two-party system and the mainstream, well, quite frankly, we're going to continue getting that snake oil and the shared delusions, which is what I titled the article, Shared Delusions, uh, Why Both the Republicans and the Democrats Lack a Coherent Foreign Policy. And that's the basic argument that I'm making there. We're uh, 10 minutes and 30 seconds into our first 20 minutes. And we've we've got about another ten minutes to try to amplify on some of the thoughts you think are are really critical out of that article. And again, yeah. I, we'll have a link to your books. We'll have a link to this article and several other articles, uh, so that people can see why we're saying what we're saying. Um, there's a there used to be liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans, classical liberalism, and that's really where the Republican uh, libertarian movement that you're talking about seems to be able to dovetail back in and hopefully that is the coalition you're talking about that we reestablish a common ground here any thoughts absolutely I'll, I'll give you an example of of where the seeds of that movement are when they were passing the defense budget massive defense budget I mean it pays my salary so maybe I shouldn't mind so much but you know what we got to take a hard look at where our dollars go. we got to take a hard look at what's done in the name of the American people, much of it in secret, okay? Uh, and that's problematic. 
because transparency is at the heart of any sort of republic or any sort of ostensible liberal democracy such as ours hopes to be. But when they passed that defense budget, Rand Paul, who I think is a, is a rather brave politician, I disagree with him on a lot of issues domestically, but you know what? I'm willing to put that aside because I see the, the good in him and I, and I see the intellectual uh, horsepower that he's got behind some of his arguments. He stands up and he says, I'm going to put an amendment on this defense bill. I'm going to put a rider on this bill. And what I'm going to say is that within six months, we have to relook our authorization for the use of military force. That's the AUMF. That's what we do instead of declaring war these days. See, mm. the United States hasn't declared war since the Second World War. Since we right. declared war on Germany, Italy, Japan, and a few of their uh, smaller allies in the Balkans. We haven't declared war since. The way we go to war is we Congress signs these authorizations for the use of military force. The, the acronym is AUMF. They give the president an extraordinary amount of latitude with which to, uh, with which to wield the military and wage these wars. And then Congress barely looks at it again. Congress doesn't do its duty and its due diligence to, uh, to question these wars and, and provide oversight on the imperial presidency, which is what I like to call it, because the presidency has gained far too much power, and, and our founding fathers uh, would be rolling in their graves if they saw mm -hmm. the way the president wields uh, power overseas. Anyway, back to our back to our protagonist in the story, Rand Paul. He stands up and says, "I'm not signing this bill uh, until we put this amendment on it that says within six months the Congress has to take a hard look at the authorization for military force that sent us into Afghanistan and figure out if that still makes sense. If that authorization is really broad enough that it covers." All these other wars we're involved in, Niger, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, right? Just to name a few, Pakistan. I mean, that authorization of military force, quite frankly, was very narrow. And it was also very broad. And I know that's confusing, but think about the language. The language of that authorization of military force was essentially this. The president may take whatever action he deems necessary to uh, attack the people who attacked us, the people who supported those who attacked us, and any countries that harbor them. This is referring to the 9-11 attacks. Right. Okay? The 9-11 attacks were planned in a broad sense in Afghanistan, and then the actual operational planning happened in Germany, Florida, California, Virginia, within the United States. So we invade Afghanistan, push the Taliban mostly into Pakistan, and, and for the most part, break up the Al-Qaeda network. It's all well and good. Tell me how that authorization of military force allows us to wage war in Yemen or in Somalia or in West Africa. Because most of the groups that were fighting in those places didn't even exist on 9-11. They could not possibly have been involved in the 9-11 attacks. They could not possibly have supported or perpetrated those attacks. And yet, because they have a similar Islamist ideology as al-Qaeda proper, president after president, Democrat and Republican, George W. Bush, supposedly liberal Barack Obama, and who knows what he is, President Trump, have all used that same AUMF from 9-11 to authorize military action, drone strikes, bombing, special forces, 
boots on the ground in nearly every country in the greater Middle East. So Rand Paul said, this is wrong. Congress has to take a hard look at every one of these interventions to see if they're actually in our, in our best interest and if they're actually winnable. Hmm. And he puts, this, he puts this amendment forward. Well, you can guess what happened. It failed miserably. He got about 31 votes, which is actually a little impressive. I would have thought he'd get less. And who voted with him? Take a look at who voted with him. It's that coalition I've been talking about. It was the far-left Democrats and the uh, kind of classic liberal, classic small-c conservative libertarians in the Republican Party behind Rand Paul. And they got about 31 votes. And it didn't pass. And both uh, Majority Leader McConnell and Minority Leader Schumer, two guys who could barely agree on anything, they came together and critiqued this amendment and fought together to make sure it didn't pass. Now that ought to tell you something. About three that minutes left in this section, and and power of the purse string goes back to Magna Carta. Um, Absolutely. It is not just Congress's responsibility, but it's the responsibility of the American people, we the people, in a republic, in a, in a government of law, uh, any thoughts there? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the people have have, uh, have turned to apathy ever since the draft was was uh, eliminated by Richard Nixon very cynically in 1972 and three. You see, it's not the kids of the congressmen, it's not the kids of the doctors and lawyers in your town that are in my platoon or in my troop when I go to Iraq and Afghanistan. No, no, these kids are from <coughs> small rural places and inner cities. They're of middle class and lower backgrounds. And so the average American person neither has anyone serving in the military nor is paying any uh, additional taxes. So they're not feeling the war. So the people and their representatives, their elected representatives, are apathetic. And they allow the president a free hand in foreign policy. They, they, they neither uh, perform their oversight or properly take a hard look at the purse strings and decide what's worth funding. They write a blank check once a year. It's a ritual at this point, mm. rather than any sort of realistic, uh, dutiful oversight. It's a ritual where everyone gets together, everyone signs off on ever more money and ever more uh, you know, uh, uh, room for the president to do essentially whatever he wants and the discretion for the imperial presidency. And uh, I would argue that the American people have uh, have done themselves a disservice and in the process done their soldiers a disservice by not paying attention to what's going on in foreign policy. They're too worried about reality TV, their iPhones, and the minutiae on MSNBC, Fox, and CNN. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's, it's a national tragedy or a national tragedy. We've got, uh, we're down to one minute in this section and it's probably a really good place to go ahead and Segway straight from there into Misunderstanding History, another article we'll have the link to. Um, please explain uh, how we're misunderstanding history. And, and you touched on Vietnam War. Uh, it's like that was a turning point. Can you, can you kind of give us a, our crash course and what do we need to know about history? Absolutely. Well, I mean... I, I taught history. <laughs> I taught American history and and quite, if, if the listeners have about uh, 36 hours, I, I can just go on and on. But I, I'm going 
I'm gonna my my wife and my kids at the dinner table. They would be they would be groaning right now that you mentioned <laughs> that you want me to talk about history. But I'm gonna focus mainly on Vietnam uh, as a as one example, as a microcosm of what I label the misunderstanding of our past. You see, uh, he who owns uh, the present controls the past, and he who controls the past controls the future. And there's there's uh, there's some truth in that. It's it's dangerous if you misunderstand the past you're going to apply it as lessons learned to the future and I would argue that our misunderstanding of the Vietnam War and our coming misunderstanding of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars is leading us into uh, poor policy and uh, an imprudent strategy but let me get back to Vietnam for a second most Vietnam vets are still alive whether they're veterans of the army or veterans of the anti-war peace movement or somewhere in the middle, most of these people are still alive. The memory of Vietnam as a national catastrophe and a national dividing point is very much with us. I would argue that the two political parties that we have today and their views on foreign policy were largely crafted in the shadow of Vietnam. The Republicans, as the hardline hawks trying to critique the Democrats as soft on foreign policy, as weak on defense, that comes from the Vietnam era. We're still fighting the Vietnam War in our collective memories. Just look at the Ken Burns documentary. Really mm. excellent documentary, about uh, 18 hours of material. And the far left and the far right on the political spectrum, spectrum both hated that. Both hated that uh, documentary, and I read extraordinarily interesting critiques of, of this, uh, what I thought was a pretty solid documentary, what I thought was, a, was an effort, was a solid effort, right? Imperfect, but solid effort on the part of Ken Burns. Well, that tells you something. The fact that a war that's 50 years old now still resonates with the people and still gets people arguing about who is right and who is wrong gets to the heart of the power of history and the power of historical memory more broadly. So let's talk about Vietnam. There is basically two basic schools of historical thought. I'm talking scholars now about the Vietnam War. One of them is called the Orthodox tradition. The Orthodox tradition is the consensus of historians of the Vietnam War, a pretty strong majority at this point. And they essentially argue that this was an unwinnable war. They gather some really persuasive evidence to show two essential things. Number one, this war wasn't winnable within the constraints of the context of the day. And number two, the war was based on a misunderstanding of the Cold War, a misunderstanding of the motives of the Vietnamese people, and therefore should not have been fought in the first place. So the orthodox tradition is the war was unwinnable and the war shouldn't have been fought in the first place. That's a consensus of scholars. But then... In the 1980s, really in the early 80s, during the Reagan presidency, that's probably, not, that's probably not a coincidence, by the way, because President Reagan comes into office and he starts saying, actually, the Vietnam War was a noble war. It was a noble cause. Your cause was just. You were sold out by the weak-kneed liberals and hippies and Democrats. And at the same time, in the early 1980s, a revisionist school begins. And the revisionist school essentially says the war was worth fighting, and not only could the war have been won, but it should have been won. And it could have been won if we did certain things differently. 
many, many, many senior military officers, both then and now, subscribe to the minority view, which is the revisionist interpretation of the Vietnam War. Now, I know this sounds complex, but it is really important to understand the differences between the orthodox and the revisionist school, because if you believe the war in Vietnam was worth fighting and winnable, that is going to color your view of contemporary warfare. Because if Vietnam was winnable and just, the war on terror is almost definitely winnable and just. And what we need is more effort, more soldiers, more bombing, more support for our troops. And if we just do that, we can beat Islamist terrorism the same way we could have, would have, should have beat communism in Vietnam. But of course, it's always more complicated than it initially sounds. Within this, revision, within this revisionist school, there are two broad categories. The first one started when a Vietnam veteran named Colonel Retired Harry Summers wrote a book called On Strategy. And he really kicks off what we would call the Clausewitzian category of revisionist historian. And his argument and his ilk that argued in his name or argued similarly are called the Clausewitzians. They essentially argued the following. The real center of gravity of this war was Hanoi, was North Vietnam. And if only we had invaded North Vietnam and bombed it into a parking lot, which we tried to do and, and unsuccessfully, but if we would have bombed more, maybe even gone nuclear, if we would have sent the entire United States Army across the parallel and into North Vietnam, and if we would have invaded both Laos and Cambodia, where the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army found sanctuary, then not only could we have won, but we would have won. That's a bold assertion. Mm -hmm. Another author who wrote something similar, although much more nuanced and a much more effective book because he's extraordinarily bright, is General H.R. McMaster, who is the current National Security Advisor of the United States of America in Trump's close national security circle. He wrote in a book published in 1998 named Dereliction of Duty. He argued that the Joint Chiefs had lied and had failed to give their best military advice to President Johnson, and they allowed themselves to be co-opted to the detriment of the American soldier. I agree with much of what H.R. McMaster has to say in that book. He taught history at West Point as well. He's a very bright guy. What I don't agree with is... What I read between the lines is his overall assertion, which is that the best military advice of the generals ought to have been to do more, to escalate further, and to get at the center of gravity in Hanoi. So in that sense, he strikes me as Clausewitzian as well. Well, let's take a quick look at what the weakness of this argument is. The weakness of this argument is that it eliminates Vietnamese voices and North Vietnamese agency. It kind of cuts them out and says, America this, America that, if America this, without actually taking a look at, well, what did the North Vietnamese want? What did the Vietnamese people want? And were they going to quit? My argument is they would not have. That people don't like being occupied, and they'll fight to the end in an insurgency to avoid being occupied by a foreign power. It also eliminates the Cold War context. If the United States were to have invaded North Vietnam there was a fear, and I think it was a, a realistic fear, that either China, the Soviet Union, or both would have intervened, potentially bringing on a Korean War scenario where we had to fight the Chinese, 
or even World War III. It's unrealistic to do either of those things. I would also argue, and most historians agree with me, that it wasn't in the national security interest of the United States. This wasn't a vital enough interest to throw the weight of the entire United States Army into an occupation of North Vietnam or an occupation of Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam. You see, but the Clausewitzians and the revisionist Clausewitzians, they can't accept that. And I understand why, by the way. It's very difficult to fight in a war or serve in the shadow of those who fought in a war where so much was lost, 58,000 American lives dead, that you can't possibly believe or allow yourself to believe that maybe this war was unwinnable or wasn't worth fighting. No, it had to be worth fighting. There had to be a purpose because I shed so much blood. My brothers, my friends shed so much blood. I'm a familiar with that argument because I've lived it in Iraq and Afghanistan where I've lost soldiers, a number of them. So I'm sympathetic to the idea, but I think it's weak history and I think it's intellectual immaturity. About so uh, a minute. Yes, please. I'll, I'll just transition quickly to the other school of thought. Which the Coinistas. <laughs> I, I love that term. Yeah, the hearts and minders. Coin, of course, stands for counterinsurgency. And the coinedinistas and the hearts and minders are the ones that say, well, we could have won in Vietnam, but we, what we, we didn't need to invade North Vietnam. What we needed to do was improve our tactics and, and, and win over the people by building more schools, protecting the population, and uh, fixing the electricity grid, inje injecting money into the economy. They say if we would have just done it a little better, if we had just been a little smarter with our use of power and done a little more coin, then we would have won the war. People who believe this uh, also sit at the top of the national security establishment. General Petraeus, who's obviously been everything from commander of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to CIA director briefly, and then Gen General Jim Mattis, who's the Secretary of Defense, who co-wrote the Army's counterinsurgency manual with one David Petraeus. Mm -hmm. These individuals also think the Vietnam War was winnable, and I would argue that they take that flawed belief and they apply it to the greater Middle East, where they say, if we just surge, that's the big popular military lexicon now, right, surge more troops, surge more money, surge more USAID activists and, and, and more American dollars and reconstruction spending into Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, you name it, then we can win. They hardly look at whether... There are enough historical examples where that has worked. I would argue it has tended not to work in foreign occupations. And the other thing I think that they miss out on is whether or not these fights are worth the injection of that much American blood and treasure. That's the two schools of revisionist thought on Vietnam. My thesis is that the fact that senior military officers have become so enamored with the revisionist schools, whether it's the Klaus Witzmans or the Hearts and Minder Coindinistas, that they have uh, taken the wrong lessons from Vietnam, read the wrong books, written some of the wrong books, and are now leading us into endless quagmire in the greater Middle East. And that seems to be our segue to the next article, uh, that we're missing that the Eurocentric history is, uh, is, is the first school that you mentioned. The winning side... Uh, the Vietnamese were working off a completely different paradigm, Sun Xu. And, and the really basic point of, of Sun Xu seems to be, if you're not going to win, don't fight. Um, any thoughts there briefly? Because we're about to go into this other article, we're killing these kids. Right. 
Well, it all connects. I mean, the next article connects. I, I, I agree that the Vietnamese were on, a, they were on a different timeline and they were in a different mental construct. Yes. They saw the war as much about nationalism as it was about communism. Probably a greater percentage of Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers who fought for 30 years for their independence from 1945 to 1975. They fought the French, mm. they fought the South Vietnamese puppet government as they considered it, and they fought the United States of America. I mean, this is a 30 and the year Japanese war. before that. And the Japanese before that. So maybe it's longer than 30 years, right? If you, if you, so they fought so. a long war for their independence. They weren't quitting no matter what. There was a conversation between that colonel, Harry Summers, and one of his Vietnamese enemies, former enemies, counterparts. They spoke at the Paris Peace Accords. And, and Colonel Summers said to his Vietnamese counterpart, he said, hey, uh, Colonel uh, Two, which I believe was his name, you know, you never beat us on the battlefield. And the colonel said, you know, you're right, but that's also irrelevant. In other <laughs> words, we were willing to sacrifice ten of our people for one of yours. You can win every battle, but if we don't quit and if we don't submit, We'll keep having children, we'll keep building more soldiers, and we will do whatever it takes to secure the united independence of a sovereign Vietnam. You don't beat a people like that. You don't. You have to start wondering, am I fighting on the right side? Am I misunderstanding the paradigm? Maybe the paradigm isn't Cold War, communist versus capitalist. Maybe it's more complicated. Maybe it's more complex. Maybe it's a nationalist coalition of communists, socialists, and just pure patriots who are fighting against a Western occupying force and what they perceive as their puppet allies. I'd argue that's the better paradigm for the Vietnam War. And oh, by the way, it coheres with the Vietnamese narrative, which we should perhaps pay attention to since it was their country. Um, we're at uh, 33 minutes into the show. Got about seven minutes to talk about what we've done to the American military, what we've done to the American soldiers, and what we've done to America. We're killing these kids. Um, please give us a quick overview of that, if you would. I wrote, I wrote that article, We're Killing These Kids, We're Breaking the Army, uh, in the American Conservative, which is a libertarian outlet. Um, most of my work ends up in relatively liberal publications, such as The Nation, Tom Dispatch, Salon, Huffington Post. Right. But occasionally I write in uh, libertarian uh, conservative outlets, like The National Interest and The American Conservative. I like to do that because I'm trying to... Help build that coalition I spoke of earlier. Please genesis do. For that article, the the genesis for that article was a conversation that I had with a mentor who is going to remain unnamed, who uh, is is a general in the United States Army now, and uh, he was complaining to me about how overstretched our soldiers are, his soldiers are, how many different commitments they have, how many different deterrence missions and combat missions we are waging with our relatively finite all-volunteer military. So we don't have a draft anymore, so it's hard to grow the military uh, in any uh, massive sense in terms of manpower because uh, there's only a certain number of people who want to enlist, right? Not everybody wants to do it, and there's no coercion, no responsibility anymore. He said, we're killing these kids. What he meant was not just in combat. He meant... We're stretching their families so thin with all these deployments that we're causing the divorce rates to skyrocket. We're putting them through so much post-traumatic stress, just trauma, that the suicide rates are through the roof. 22 veterans a day are killing themselves in America right now. So that's a na that is a national epidemic. That is a national uh, tragedy that needs to be spoken about more. And that's what he meant. 
we're breaking these kids. We're breaking the army because we're we're overusing it in areas that are not national security threats, in areas that are not vital security interests. We're trying to fight everywhere. We're trying to do everything, and in the process, we do nothing well. I took his argument, and I started to analyze it a little further. I said, well, what is the Army doing today? I mean, I, I could speak for myself, and I've been busy for the last 12 years, certainly, but I'm just one guy, and yeah, I did my Iraq time, and I did my Afghanistan time, and I spent plenty of time in the field, but I come to find out the Army's doing a lot more things than that. America's Special Forces, which are the most stretched of all the military units, are, as I said earlier, in 70% of the countries on the earth right now. We essentially garrison the world. Nobody else does this, by the way. Not even the Chinese, not even the Russians. They have a paltry number of foreign bases and foreign military installations when compared to the United States, which has exponentially more than any other country, or probably all the other countries in the world combined. We police the planet. It, 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 it looks like imperialism or neo-imperialism to many people. I said, let's look at one division in the United States Army. Let's not look at the special forces. Let's look at the most conventional units in the United States Army. So I took a look at the 1st Armored Division out of Fort Bliss, Texas. You could do this. You could do what I did. I just Googled 1st Armored Division, Fort Bliss, Texas. I said, let's see what they're doing. Well, you go to their website. they got a nice, pretty website. You know, I'm sure they got some uh, lieutenant who's in charge of uh, making that look good for the general. And uh, it brags, uh, or at least it states, uh, I don't know if it's bragging or not, that the 1st Armored Division today is performing dozens of missions on five continents today, on any given day. That is an enormous amount of responsibility. That is an enormous amount of interventions for one armored unit, one conventional military unit, be engaged in. Let's just review what the United States Army, and I'll speak about the Army specifically because that's my expertise and that's my life experience. I'm going to give you a tour, a broad tour, of what the United States Army is doing today in the world. Let's start in Europe. We're told that Vladimir Putin is the new czar of Russia. His version of totalitarian or authoritarianism is the new communism, and therefore, Russia has to be checked, and Russia has to be deterred. Maybe there's some truth in that. Maybe it's exaggerated. I tend to think the latter. So what are we doing? Well, we're sending elements from the United States Army's tank divisions, infantry divisions, and airborne divisions to Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, to Poland and to Germany, to Romania and to other places in the Balkans. And they sit there and they train and they prepare for a potential war, and essentially they encircle the old Soviet Union, they encircle modern-day Russia with American military forces as what they call an act of deterrence to keep the Russians from expanding. That takes a lot of soldiers, and it takes a lot of effort, and it divides a lot of people from their families for long periods at a time. Luckily, there's no shooting war, and I hope there never will be. But that's the first major deployment. Let's move south to Africa. In Africa, there's a uh, uh, a large number of countries on the African continent. The United States Army has advisors uh, and, uh, and other military trainers, and in some cases special forces actually doing active combat in two-thirds of the countries of Africa on any given day. We saw four special operations soldiers killed in Niger, which uh, I would 
surmise approximately 1 in 15 at most Americans could find on a map or pronounce correctly. I would be guilty and, of that. Yeah, and that's okay, right? I mean, it's okay, but it raises some important questions. Like, what are we doing there if the American people don't even know we're there? Uh, it's, 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 it's ludicrous. It, it, it borders on the absurd. But in Africa, we've got two-thirds of the countries of Africa with garrisons from the United States Army in some form or another, whether they be advisors, trainers, or in some cases, actual combat forces. So we've got elements in the United States Army that are stationed in the United States being sent on deployments to Africa, sometimes in training missions, sometimes in shooting missions. So we move to the east, to our favorite place to fight, Uncle Sam's battleground of the last 30 years, which is the greater Middle East. I'm talking about everything from North Africa across to the Indian subcontinent and Pakistan. Where are American soldiers engaged in hostilities in that area? I'll just list a few countries. Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen. That's a quick overview of the places the United States Army is engaged in combat operations in the Middle East. We have American soldiers all over Southwest Asia doing all kinds of things and still dying, mind you, although in modest numbers compared to the times when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Unfortunately, the American people don't care too much about dozens of soldiers killed a year. doesn't really show up as more than a blip on the radar. We lose just few enough soldiers killed and wounded in those wars that it stays under the radar. Most Americans don't care, and they maintain their apathy, and they look down to their next iPhone app, and they snap in their chat, and they do their memes and all the other stuff that my kids are obsessed with. And they forget the fact that we have soldiers in all the countries that I just mentioned. They barely take time to question what they're doing. Let's keep moving a little further east. And we've got East Asia. In East Asia, we talk about maybe having to unleash fire and fury, in President Trump's words, against the North Korean rogue regime. Because of that, we're deploying brigades of American soldiers from the mainland United States in order to reinforce the soldiers, about 30,000, that we already have in Korea, in South Korea. It's another deterrence mission, and it's very similar to what we're doing in Europe. All that is to say that a unit like the 1st Armored Division or a unit like the 1st Cavalry Division on any given day, probably has a few hundred or thousand soldiers in the Middle East, a few hundred or thousand soldiers in Europe, a few hundred soldiers in Africa, and probably a few thousand soldiers in South Korea. To say nothing of the training they have to do at home station, or their preparedness to augment the National Guard in the case of superstorms, which are becoming ever more prevalent in a post-global warming climate change scenario. What I'm describing to you is an army at its breaking point. You see, you barely see it because it's an all-volunteer professional force. It doesn't touch most of us. No, we put our soldiers in places like Fort Riley, Kansas, and places like Fort Hood, Texas, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina. We keep them just far enough from the major coastal cities so your average New Yorker or Los Angelino never has to really see a military family or see the burden that's being asked of those soldiers. No, they don't have to see that because we keep it just far enough away, just rural enough, just distant enough that the American people can ignore what their army is doing and what's being done in their name. These soldiers are breaking. They're brave and they're professional, and they're not going to let you know it. 
but just take a walk, walk into one of your VA hospitals and get a sense for how many soldiers are applying for disability, for physical wounds or even more often for mental, emotional wounds, moral damage, post-traumatic stress. Just take a look at the statistics on suicide. Take a look at the statistics on divorce, multiple divorces. I'm divorced and remarried. Everyone I know in my unit is divorced, remarried, maybe divorced again. We ask a lot of our soldiers. We ask too much of them. We have to do one of two things. We either have to bring back the draft and make a five million man army and attempt to police the world in what I would argue is a chaotic campaign, tilting at windmills, that will eventually fail, or we have to do something else. It's what I call the do less strategy. Do less. Pay attention to what is actually in our vital national security interest. Only engage in wars that are in our defense. Defense. The Department of Defense. We used to call it the Department of War. We should probably call it the Department of War again, because that's what we do. We wage foreign wars on foreign soil. We only play away games. We only play away games in the United States Army. We're not defending the Canadian border. We're not defending the Mexican border, at least not in a traditional warfare sense. There are no Russian bases in Quebec. There are no Chinese bases in Mexico City or Acapulco. We have bases right on their borders. We expand our military into installations that surround the Russians and the Chinese in order to, quote, deter them. How would we respond if something similar was done in the Caribbean, Canada, or Mexico? Take a look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think you have an idea. We'll probably go right up to the wall and nearly get involved in a nuclear war. It's amazing the restraint in some ways that the Chinese and the Russians show. I'm not apologizing for them. I think that those are both problematic regimes, and I think they are expansionists, and they are irredentists, and we should worry about them. The question is, are we making it safer? Are we escalating or de-escalating the situation? I would essentially argue the United States is doing too much. It's asking too much with soldiers, and it needs to pare down its strategy to something a little more prudent and sustainable. And that's the overall argument of that article. Fourteen minutes left. Um, we did a show called Guns or Butter, and it was trying to bring out that there was a foreign policy directive that most people weren't even aware existed. Um, we, we basically, again, secrecy. Uh, how can we oversee what's going on when we don't even know what's going on? Uh, can you talk briefly about guns or butter? How long can we sustain the unsustainable? See, uh, they, uh, it is unsustainable. Uh, that, that's, that's absolutely um, what I would argue. It's, it's, um, it's, it's absolutely unsustainable. And, and I'm brought back to President Dwight Eisenhower, who I want to talk about. I'm a historian. I'm a dork. So that's what I talk about. Dwight Eisenhower is remembered as many different things. He's remembered as a famous general who helped defeat the Nazis in World War II. He was that. He's remembered as a president who presided over the supposedly tranquil and prosperous 1950s, and in some sense he was that. He's also remembered as the president who played a lot of golf and smiled a lot and was considered to have been, uh, if anything, uh, sort of a quiet and uh, almost comic sort of figure, and in some places he's remembered that way. But I want to remember a different Eisenhower, and that's the Eisenhower who gave two speeches that I'm very fond of. One was called the Cross of Iron speech, which I believe was given in 1953, early in his first term, and the other one is his 
farewell address on national television before he handed over the reins of power to one young senator named John F. Kennedy. Dwight Eisenhower, who graduated from West Point, my alma mater, in 1915, spent his entire adult life in the United States Army at the rank of lieutenant all the way up to five-star general, the highest rank available in the United States military. He was a servant of the nation, and he had seen war, not so much as a combat soldier, because he didn't do a lot of that. He, he, he was at a higher level for most of his career. But he saw the sacrifice of our soldiers, and he saw the horror of war, and it never left him. And as an intellectually mature and a morally mature man, it affected him. And he saw that the growing Cold War over which he presided as president was damaging not only to the military budget, not only to the soldiers who might die, but also to the republic, the small-r republic, the United States of America. He saw that there was a trade-off between guns and butter, and guns was winning. Guns has continued to win that trade-off. There's only so much money in the checkbook, in the checking account. Like I told you earlier, I don't believe neither the Republicans or the Democrats could balance a checkbook worth a damn. Eisenhower saw that. In 1953, he gave a speech called the Cross of Iron speech, and he said, basically I'm paraphrasing, he said that we have to remember something. We have to remember the trade-off of guns versus butter. He says every, you know, every nuclear weapon, every strategic bomber, every new tank division that we build is in a sense a theft from those who are hungry and do not eat, from those who are, you know, in the elements and not clothed. He says every bomber costs us X many schools. Every tank division could buy this many hospitals. And he goes on and on with it, and he really hammers the point home, and it's, it's very powerful coming from a military man, because you don't expect it. And he says, this isn't life, not in any true sense, this Cold War, this constant garrison state. He says, it is humanity crucified on a cross of iron. Humanity hung on a cross of iron. And he's essentially arguing that the permanent warfare state, okay, the permanent warfare state, it hurts our republic and it hurts our people. Because... Even in Eisenhower's time, which we have to remember, Eisenhower was a Republican. Of course, he could never run as a Republican today. Do you know what the top marginal tax rate was for the, for the upper 1% during the Eisenhower Republican administration? It was 90%. 90%. It's about, what, 39.6% or so now, give or take. And he said that even with that high tax rate, when you spend as much as we do on nuclear weapons and the military garrison state that has soldiers all around the world, you're inevitably conducting a trade-off. And the trade-off is domestic programs that could create a better life. It's not just health care. It's not even just education. It's not just a social safety net. It's not just a college. It's also the arts, the things that make humanity interesting, the things that make life worth living. There's no room for those things when the vast majority of discretionary spending goes to the military. This is not to say that we don't have massive entitlement spending in the United States and that we don't have to take a tough look at that. We do. But we also have to admit that there is a guns and butter trade-off, and guns are, have been winning. And it's not just the military-industrial complex like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, you name it, Honeywell, that are supplying our military. It's also that we are the number one arms sale country in the world. 
we sell more arms to some nefarious regimes, mind you, i.e. Saudi Arabia, than any other country in the world. We're a country that speaks of peace and speaks of democracy, but puts more weapons on the street of this globe than any other country. That is the guns butter argument. And Eisenhower warned us as he left office. He could have spoken about anything as he left office that night. And he went on national television. He could have said, he could have done a laundry, that's what I think our current president would do. He could have given a laundry list of all his great accomplishments, and he had many. He didn't want to do that. He could have went on there and given some sort of self-aggrandizing speech. He didn't do that. He could have went on there and said, you know, I've just really had an honor to be your president. And he said that. But then he said, what I'm really concerned about is a growing military-industrial complex, a connection between the arms industry and the military to continually spend more and more American dollars in a permanent garrison state, that same state that he feared in his 1953 speech. I think that every American should have to listen to the Cross of Iron speech and to the farewell address of Dwight Eisenhower in 1960 before he gave over office to John F. Kennedy. That's the guns and butter analogy, and I would argue we live with it today. I'll give you one example of that. This is minutia, and it's anecdotal, but I think it's instructive. I'm a big Army football fan. I went to West Point. I'm unapologetically a fan of football, even though I realize it's barbaric in a whole number of ways. But this year, Army went 10-3, and best uh, record they've had since 1996. I was very excited. I watched every game every Saturday. Well, Army did so well that they got themselves into a bowl game for the first time since 19, well, since 2010 and for only the second time since 1996. What bowl did they play in? It wasn't the Rose Bowl. It wasn't the Peach Bowl. No, we've given corporate names to most of those bowls long ago. They played in the Lockheed Martin Military Bowl. Just the name alone indicates the power of the pervasive military-industrial complex even today. Even today in 2018. And I just want you to think about that for a second. I want the listeners to think about that for a hot moment and say, what does it tell us that our Army football team, which in some ways ought to be a symbol for the nation, something to be proud of, because those West Pointers who I taught, they're really, really phenomenal kids. But they played in the Lockheed Martin Military Bowl. And it's so instructive. And we're back. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Uh, You were talking about Eisenhower's top tax rate. Can you Finish that thought, and and what kind of a coherent defense strategy should we be looking at, briefly? So absolutely. Um, What's really interesting about Dwight Eisenhower's presidency is that he is a Republican, of course. He could probably never serve in the Republican Party today, which has moved so far to the right. But the top tax rate on, like, you know, the upper 1% was about 90%. Today, it's somewhere in the realm of 39 to 40%, I believe. We actually have some of our lowest income taxes in American history, or at least since, uh, since at least the Great Depression. Uh, most people don't realize that. They think they were overtaxed and that uh, America is oppressive in its tax regime. And the reality is, under Eisenhower, who was a Republican, that the uh, tax rate was about 90%. But even with that tax rate, even with that rate of taxing, he said that This Cold War environment, this warfare state, this permanent military garrison state, it's really no kind of life at all for the American people. In fact, he said it's humanity essentially hung from a cross of iron. And he argued that 
we were making so many trade-offs between guns and butter and that guns was winning, of course, and that, like he had said in his earlier speech, every missile that was built could have been this many schools, could have been this many uh, hospitals, et cetera, or, or this much grain to feed Americans and the, and the people of the world who were struggling. And, uh, and, and I think that it was a really, really incredible point for a former general who had spent his entire life waging war uh, to be uh, to be saying, and I think that was the power of it. As he made his final address to the American people uh, on television, just before John F. Kennedy took over in 1961, he said, well, uh, I want to speak to the American people tonight about something very important. And he didn't do a number of things that he could have done. And I think our current president probably would do some of those things. Eisenhower did not stand there and give off a laundry list of all of his accomplishments, which I believe President Trump would probably do, and most presidents would probably do. No, he didn't do that. He said, I want to talk to the American people about something very, uh, very difficult, uh, very dangerous, and, and to some extent very sophisticated, and that was the overwhelming power of the military-industrial complex. He was worried that arms dealers were colluding essentially with the United States military in order to maintain the facade of a uh, permanent uh, Soviet existential threat in order to increase defense budgets and increase the arms industry. That is a very controversial thing for a former general and president of the United States to say, but I think that's precisely why we should pay attention to it. I used to play that, or at least clips of that speech for my students at West Point, much to their surprise. And a lot of them couldn't believe that Eisenhower, the graduate of West Point, where they were students, had said such things. But they're powerful, and I would argue that they were beautiful. In case you think the military-industrial complex is not alive and well today, you would be mistaken, as you see that we are not only the the highest-spending military in the world, larger than the next eight or nine countries after us combined, but we're also the top arms dealer in the entire world, and therefore our arms industry is continuing to make money. One anecdotal example that I think is instructive is uh, involving the Army football team. I'm a big fan of Army football. A lot of my friends played for the team. I still watch Army football, even though I realize that football is rather barbaric. I'm unapologetically a fan. Maybe that's a character flaw, but I am a fan. Well, this year, Army had a phenomenal season. It went 10-3 and and actually made it into a bowl game which is great because we, we very rarely get into a bowl game. I think we've only been in five in the history of the team and hadn't been in a bowl game for about a decade. Well, we went to and won our bowl game, which was interestingly titled. Have you noticed that everything that involves sports, whether it be stadiums or bowl games, has a corporate name now? Well, guess what the name of our bowl was? We played and won uh, our battle with San Diego State in the Lockheed Martin Military Bowl. Think about that for a second. The Lockheed Martin Military Bowl. That didn't happen in 1949. It didn't happen in 1960. It happened in 2017. And that's the world we live in. The, the military industrial complex, uh, it, it endures. Guns is still winning in the argument between guns and butter and the trade-off between guns and butter. And I would ask that Americans take a look at, at that Eisenhower. 
I'm not telling you to forget the Eisenhower who helped invade Normandy and helped defeat the Nazis. I'm not asking you to forget that Eisenhower. He's a phenomenal man and he's worth study. But I want you to take a moment, listeners, to think about the other Eisenhower who saw the error of the ways of the military-industrial complex and asked the American people to fear and fight against the pervasive power of such. And uh, I would also ask that as we think about guns and butter, we really ask ourselves an important question, which is, which is winning? And I would argue that guns is uh, is still the winning ticket right now. So we've got about four minutes left, so your wife doesn't yell at us. Uh, <laughs> let's close on an optimistic. Uh, can you sketch in five minutes a vision for a coherent defense strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I wish... I wish that I was smart enough and the issue was simple enough for me to spend five minutes and come up with something that is uh, brilliant and change the world. But I'll, uh, I'll do my best, and I'm going to entitle my sustainable national security strategy the do-less strategy. And the do-less strategy, which I mentioned earlier, is that we only use the military in defense of our vital national security interests. We pare down the size and scope of our military to a reasonable level, I don't want to see the military dismantled. I've had a very, you know, a, a very interesting experience serving the military. I've been proud to do it. I've been proud to teach the next young generation of officers. I don't hate the military. I don't want to see it eliminated. What I want is for it to be sized and scaled to the actual threats that are out there. I want it to be a powerful military which serves as a deterrence that properly defends the shores of the United States and properly defends American interests when they are indeed at risk. But I want us to reevaluate what's actually in our vital national security interests. And I would argue that terrorism is pervasive. It will always be with us, but that it is an overemphasized uh, alarmist threat. So many more people die in their bathtubs every year than attacked by transnational Islamist terrorism. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't use our intelligence forces and our law enforcement to try to root out terror. It means that the right answer isn't always an American soldier standing on a corner in Baghdad. And I would further argue that the more we do that, the more we put that soldier in the Middle East, the more we turn the people in those regions against the United States and that we actually are counterproductive. So what I want to see is less American soldiers deployed to less places, spending most of their time training and preparing for actual vital security threats, and I want the Defense Department to live up to its name, which is Defense Department, not War Department. I want that change of name to be real, and I want it to be reflected in the way that we conduct ourselves in the world. So do less. That's the strategy. Do less. Be careful not to be counterproductive. Have an effective military that's well-funded, that trains in the United States, and is prepared to defend our national security interests. But I want us to spend more of our time spreading American power and values through soft power economic investments, uh, cultural persuasion in a, in a positive way, and living our values. The best thing the United States of America can do is live up to the values that are enshrined in its constitution, in its declaration of independence, and, so, and actually serve as an example for the rest of the world and not always lead with its military. So maybe that sounds optimistic. Maybe it sounds idealistic. And I know I only had a couple of minutes to break it down. But if you remember one thing, it's this. Do less and act like a Department of Defense, not a Department of Never-Ending War.